Okay, this morning we're going to continue, again, still even before we get into Exodus uh, 28 and 29, where it refers to uh, Aaron and goes into the priesthood and all those functions that point to Christ, who's the antitype of the type that Aaron was, as Aaron would would approach and would go into the Holy of Holies. Again, the first thing... God wants us to see this morning again in Exodus 27, uh, verse 20 and 21. Again, verse 20 says, And you will command the children of Israel that they bring you pure olive oil, beaten for the light. What do do we have to bring to uh, to God other than Christ? Is there any approach to him other than him? And as a result of his sacrifice and everything that he went through, Is there any other approach to God that God would be satisfied with or that he could rest in? And of course the answer is no, because again in Zephaniah 3, verse 17, uh, God himself is resting in his love, and his love obviously is his son uh, in that eternal embrace that he had with him still, still in John 1, 1 and 2. So you will bring... uh, you pure olive oil. In other words, nothing mixed with it. It's all about Christ. Nothing's to be mixed with it. Um, uh, God said to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, he said, your wine, your silver, and your wine are mixed. They become mixed. And God is not satisfied with anything about us outside of Christ, when we mix anything. Is, is it even necessary? Or is it even who we are if we try and mix anything? And thank God the old has nothing to do with who we are in the eternal mind of God through the eternal life of Christ that's ours. So we're not to mix anything with it, right? Because that's what makes it pure. So it was pure olive oil beaten, and what? For the light, so that we could see. And look what it says, to cause, right? So before, again, we mentioned uh, yesterday, before there is a first mention, there must be a first cause, of course. And that's God. He's uncaused, uncreated life. He's in create, uncaused, uncreated life. So to cause the lamp, remember what we said about the lamp in uh, Proverbs 20, 27, in, in Job 29, verse 3, where it says, candle in many translations, the, the candle of the Lord. Really, it's the lamp of the Lord. And that's what he uses to search us inwardly. And hopefully, what does he find there? And where can he find us? In Christ. Because that's where his eye is in Job 36 and verse 7. He never removes his eye from the righteous. And who is our righteousness? In 1 Corinthians 1.30, it's Christ. Christ is our righteousness. Is any, is, do we need to mix anything with it? Does God need us to mix anything with it? And of course, there's no way that we could do that because Christ is God's way in John 14, verse 6. And then it says, to cause the lamp to burn always. Huh? And, and that's a reminder uh, to us. The holiness of the fire of God's love that has purified us through Christ while it burnt up everything on Calvary that wasn't of him in Christ and wasn't of us. So it burnt it up. 
to, and it's to always burn. In other words, we're always going to be constantly reminded. And remember how, remember how we went into Revelations 5, verse 6. The lamb had, for in eternity, it looked like he had just been freshly slain. That's what he, what he will appear to us for all eternity. And as we look at him and look at the scars, the beautiful marks, the marks of love in him, that's our complete image, our true image is in him. To burn always, and here is verse 21 of Exodus 27. In the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil, and are we his tabernacle right now? Are we his, our bodies? So when it says in John 1 verse 14, when the word who always is became what? It, it was made flesh, became flesh, and dwelt among us. The word dwelt among us literally means he tabernacled himself in humanity to identify with us. And now because of him, because of him as the pure olive oil that was beaten and that we have this light, we see our proper image through that light that Christ is in us. And that's an incredible thing. And we are his tabernacle. Again, we are the temple, the tabernacle of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. We are the tabernacle, the temple of the Lord. We are owned, we were bought by him in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. So we're not our own, but we were bought by him. What a price that he paid. We went into the price that he paid. And we see it here in type, the, uh, the pure olive oil that was beaten. And we mentioned the verses in Isaiah 50, verse 6, and Isaiah uh, 52 and verse 14, and then in Isaiah the 53rd chapter in those 12 verses, explain in type everything that Christ went through is that pure beaten olive oil. In other words, he was beaten. And all that ever came out of him was what? Purity. And yet the fire of God's holiness, while he was on the cross with our sins on him, it, it dealt with it and buried it. And it's not who we are. That's an amazing thing to have in our thought life this morning as his vessels. And the lamp is our human spirit. We are his vessel. We are his tabernacle. And we are lit up. We are lit up with the glory of Christ and what he's, what he's done on our behalf. So in the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons will order it from evening to morning before the Lord. There's a precise order in everything that God has done for you and I in and by Christ. That again is 1 Corinthians 14, 40. God does what? All things what? Decently, honestly, transparently, and in order. And who is God's order? It's Christ. And when we function in God's order in Christ, are our thoughts the same as his and our steps directed by him? Yes. And thereby, in 1 John 4, verse 17, we're to have boldness in the day of judgment. If we're to have boldness in the day of judgment that's coming, there is none for us. Should we be bold right now in his love? Because as he is right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, so are we. 
right now in this present evil world that we have nothing to do with. We're passing through in 1 Peter 2.11 as strangers and pilgrims. We're just passing through on our way in this wilderness world system, on our way to meet Christ face to face in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 because in Hebrews 13 verse 14 we seek a continuing city. We have that continuing life. And he's given us eternal life to function in all eternity with Christ. Pretty amazing. So when it says that, Aaron and his sons will order it from evening to morning before the Lord. It will be a statute. One of the things we want to get into this morning is what a statute is. A statute. It will be a statute forever unto their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Now, this is speaking of what God has done and will do in a millennial reign for the children of Israel, but it's what he's already finished about us in Christ. That's who we are in him. Now, when it says a statute, here's the word statute. It's pronounced coke. You would pronounce it like K-H-O-K-E, but it's spelt C-H-O-Q. Coke. And what is that statute? It's an enactment. It's an appointment. It is, this word when it's used in the Hebrew as a noun, speaks of what? It's a prescription. What do you have a prescription for? When something's not healthy, when we're not thinking healthy thoughts, and then our emotions have to pay for the content of the bad thinking, and then we end up with bad emotions. But what is the prescription? Well, again, the prescription is Christ himself. That's why it says in Psalm 107, verse 20, he sent his word. Who is the word in John 1, 1? That's Christ. He sent his word, and he what? He healed them. And he delivered them from all their plural destructions. Everything that the enemy, using the past, using the old, using someone else's past, someone else's old, someone else's rejection, someone someone else's evil thoughts towards us, God's given us a prescription to deal with all that. We have a statute, a prescription. It speaks of a rule. God is guiding us with a prescription that Christ is. Who is he? He's the great physician, is he not? He's the great physician, Luke 19, verse 10. So it's a law. For us, it's not the Ten Commandments, the law. It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus in Romans 8, 2, that set us free from the law of sin and death. Prescription constantly. Constant prescription. So thereby, it's called a regulation. God's going to regulate. He's going to guide and rule over us with the health, the prescription of who we are in Christ. Pretty awesome. See? And so that, when it's a verb in the Hebrew, when it's this word statute, that is C-H-O-Q in the Hebrew, as a noun, but when it's a verb, listen to what it is. When it's a verb, it's spelled H-A-Q-A-Q. Hakok. Hakak. Literally. And listen, this is what it means. Watch what it means. It means to cut in. It means to cut in. It means to determine and decree. What is that saying? God is always 
trying in us to cut in our experience, the reality that, and his determination and his decree about who his son is in us and who we are in him. He's cutting it in. And when I looked at that, and God said to me, now do you remember those notes that you wrote in the Red Cardinal that long time ago about Christ? I said, yes. And he began to correlate it. And I was a little bit excited this morning when he was doing that. And this is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, God who at many different times, all kinds of times, and in many different ways, spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. All covenant, Old Testament prophets, has in these last days, my God, if when Paul through the, if the Holy Spirit wrote this through Paul, how long ago? And they were last days. They certainly are much more now. Has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the effulgent, the full effulgence and brightness of his glory, and the express, the exact same copy, image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. How does God keep continually uphold us? By the word of his power. Well, who is God's power? Are we kept by the power of God in 1 Peter 1.5? Yes. Who is the power of God? Christ in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And even through all our infirmities, what has he given us? He's given us, that's the place, the weakness in the infirmities is the place where his power rests in us. And that gives us the place of rest. And that's 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, and Joel 3, verse 10. Also, it goes into Isaiah 2, verse 4. There's times when that power will cause us to rest and be still, based upon Joel 3, 10, and Isaiah 2, verse 4. But there's times when we need to beat the plowshare into a sword. There's times when, we're, when he's, we're plowing the word, and he's constantly telling us and giving us who we are. We're plowing it up and getting the ground ready for the seed of the word to fall on good ground in Luke 8, verse 15. But then there's other times in the midst of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6 and verse 17 where we need to take up the sword of the spirit. And we're doing battle. But who's doing it? Whose sword is it? It's the sword of the spirit. We rest in him because the battle is the Lord's. So there's times when we use a sword and we can only use it as the Holy Spirit is the sword that gives us the things that are ours in Christ in the midst of spiritual warfare. And then there's other times where he's constantly reminding us, plowing new areas, new fruit, new growth about who we are in Christ. And so that goes into this word here. So by the word of his power, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Are we his most prized possession? Are we? Are we the height of God's creation? 
You know, everything that God's created in the endless, eternal universe <laughs> and galaxies, with all of that, we are the height of his creation. That's Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are his. Each one of us is a special creation, and we have a specific image in our own individuality that's going to shine out, and want, and God desires it to shine out now, and, for, and it will for all eternity. Again, that goes into that, the hidden manna and the new stone, that new name, which is written on a stone, inscribed, inscribed. Think of that. So when we look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, especially, understand that, and God wants us to understand that, and, and what it's saying in Revelation 2 verse 17, because he inscribes a name on the stone that only the one who gives it and the one who receives it knows the detail of that in an intense fellowship for all eternity. But here, when it says that Christ is the express image of his person and upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had, past tense, right? By himself, did he need any help? No. Purged our sins. Are we our sins? When we confess sin, are we confessing that's who we are? In 1 John 1, 9? No, because it's no longer I that do it in Romans 7, 17 and 20, but sin that dwells in me, and it's not who we are. Thank God for that. But after purging our sins, you know what he did? He sat down. Why? After you have a day's work, you put labor in. When you're done and the work is finished, what do you do? You sit down and rest. What do we do? Is God resting in his son? Is the son resting in in the satisfaction of the Father. Are they resting in Christ in us? Are we in Him? Is there anything for us to finish? Is there anything left for us to figure out or try to discern or figure out? No. So, He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. When Again, when it speaks of the right hand, it speaks of God's absolute satisfaction, approval, and power in Christ with us in him. That's right hand. Now, when it says image here, and this is very key, this is is something we want to finish up on, on the book or the booklet about image and our proper image. Image here is the Greek word character, but it's spelled C-H-A-R-A-K-T-E-R. Where do you suppose we get our English word character? Where do you suppose we get that? From a proper image about who we are, each one of us, who we are in Christ, right? And this is what that word means. It's from karasuo, and it means to sharpen to a point through the idea of scratching. It's like a stake. It's like a graver that takes a tool and engraves. You see how this goes about image and how it goes with that new, that stone in Revelation 2.17 and he inscribes his character that he made mine and is now mine in him and we have this hidden man of fellowship Because while we were on the earth, in Isaiah 45 and verse 3, he was given us the treasures of darkness. Boy, 
there were hidden treasures because maybe someone didn't know what we were going through and maybe they didn't understand us. Maybe they didn't mean to reject us or misunderstand us, but they did because like us all, we're weak and frail. And sometimes we're so occupied with ourselves that we forget others, but he didn't. He gave us the treasures of darkness. And boy, are they going to be exposed in the light, the eternal light. He gives us the treasures of darkness and hidden riches in secret places. The hidden riches in secret places is Christ himself in Colossians 2, 3, where all the riches of wisdom and the treasures of knowledge are hidden in Christ. Colossians 2, 3. And he is that treasure in each vessel in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. And so he's inscribed in, in our character. And you know a diamond, how hard that thing. And when you inscribe on that, it's forever. It's an eternal work of God. And so as we see these things, as we see these particular things here, again, it's, it's by implication, it means to engrave. He's engraving on us, in our experience, our true character based upon our position in Christ. This all has to do with statute, the statutes, the word, and how God uses the word to engrave upon us. And the word, again, in Hebrews 4.12, is living. It's a life-giving power and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul. Get out the soul, the the self-life that has nothing to do with our true character. And let him, through the Spirit now, continue to engrave our proper character through a proper image. And that's Hebrews 4.12 in a way that I've never seen it before. And that's why it's the sword of the Spirit even in the midst of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6 and verse 17. So really what it's saying here is it is the figure stamped. So in other words, Christ in his humanity was the figure stamped. He's an exact copy. He's an exact express image and representation of God. And who are we in Christ? Is Christ our life in Colossians 3 verse 4? That's what it says in, in Colossians 3, verse 3. You died. You're all just dead. Dead thoughts. So do you receive someone else's dead thoughts if you're dead? What does a dead man think? Doesn't. He's dead. You died. And now your life is hidden with Christ and God. And that's that hidden manna. Again, and that's Colossians 3, 4. And Colossians 3, 3 and 4. And that goes into Revelations 2 and verse 17. So it's a tool for engraving. It's to cut into, to engross. And again, that's where we get our character and characteristic. Now for that true character, for us to know it, what has God also given us? The one who does the engraving is God, the Holy Spirit. But he, who's, who's the engravement or the tool that he uses? It's Christ. He engraves on us who we are. You know, he does that individually. Nobody can do that for you, and no one can do that for me but God, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because you and I are his very unique, special individuals that he loves so deeply and so deeply desires to fellowship with in an intensity and intimacy that nothing can disturb or distract. And boy, when we're in fellowship with him, does anything move us? And that's why his plan is designed in Hebrews 12, 25 to 29 to remove anything that can be removed 
He's not rejecting us. He's rejecting in us what we're not of that needs to be removed so he can continue to, to have us function and receiving this engraving, this character that's being brought into our experience continually. And that's that Christ in us can't be shaken. And when I function in him, can I be? And I won't be. And neither will you. And so that's what that goes into. And there's where we get in 1 John 1, 7. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Think about that. Walk in the light as he is in the light. And then you'll have fellowship with him and you'll experience the continual cleansing of that once for all blood that bought our salvation and continually deliver us. And what is that finished work doing? It's continually delivering us to a proper image in our experience, which is based upon our position, and it's immovable. And when I function in my experience with my position that's immovable, can I be moved? And will you be moved? And we won't be. None of us. And that is always speaking in 1 John 1, 7. Walking in the light. It speaks not of our behavior or our conduct. It speaks of our character. God has inscribed on us the character of who Christ is in us and who we are in him. And it's an engravement, engravement that'll never be erased. <laughs> Thank God, because he did it. And he did it through Christ. So then it's a stamp or it's an impress. That's what that word says. It's like something that was on a coin or a steel or a seal, I should say, and in which case the seal or the dye that makes it, which makes an impression, bears the image which was produced by it. Isn't that awesome? You think about this? And that's what a statute is. And so, again, it corresponds respectively. All the features correspond respectively to that image, to the image that God was using as the instrument to produce it in us. And that's what it says. So in the New Testament, it is used metaphorically of the Son of God as the express image of God's very substance. So the phrase, that phrase in Hebrews 1.3 expresses the fact that the Son is both personally distinct from and yet literally equal to Him of whose essence He is the imprint. And again, that's why, listen, only God is love. Notice that? Only God is love. Love is not God. Only God is love. <laughs> That's why we're called not children of love, but children of light. Because that love is a lit up life that comes out and brings us into that love that we are in God and loved by him. That's why in Ephesians 1, 6, we're called the beloved. Because we're in Christ. And so, as we continue here, we see that in, in this sense, the Son of God is not merely, just not only his image, his very character. He is the image or impress of his substance, the very substance and essence that God is. And again, when we talk about the essence, nature, character, and of God, is God's essence essential for us? <laughs> it is. It's very essential. And so what we see here is it is the fact of complete similarity which this word is stressing. 
We don't know ourselves outside the imprint of who we are. And when it says sealed, you know, when you when like emperors and these kings, they sealed something, that was it. It was unchangeable. Seal. And you and I, because of what Christ has done, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We were regenerated by him in Titus 3, 5. That was one of his functions, as well as taking the things of Christ in John 16, 13, and 14 and showing them unto us. But also, he sealed us in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. We've been sealed <laughs> individually in a way that no one else can reveal them, like you and I as his vessels. Very unique. Very unique. And so there's a similarity. There's a similarity that we have. And that's what a statute is. Again, a statute, again, it's an enactment here in the Hebrew. We, we just explained it in the Greek in, in Hebrews 1 uh, in verse 3. But the statute here, okay, this is what it says in, in Exodus uh, 27 verse 21 Look what it says. It will be a statute forever. Forever. It's unchangeable. That's our character. It's unchangeable. Because in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord thy God. I what? Change not. Should I get involved with others that don't function in him? Love them if they're Christians. Certainly not the unsaved. We need to come out from them in 2 Corinthians 6.14-17. Okay? That's, that's the facts. And if we're with him, we're only with him to win them and to express Christ. And he'll do that and, and be faithful. But the fact of the matter is, should I meddle with them that are given to change? Should I have, can I have fellowship with another believer who's not experiencing Christ? Is there any fellowship? Can there be an exchange? No, because in Proverbs 24, 21, meddle not with them that are given a change. The word change there in Hebrew is you become intertwined and mixed. You, you do. That's why we need to walk with, with godly men and women in Jeremiah 5, verse 5. And that's why in Proverbs 13, 20, he that walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion, friendships of the world who are foolish will be destroyed. And who's a fool in Proverbs 18, verse 2? One whose source and substance is in himself becomes in an opinion, an expression of himself apart from God. And again, the statute is, again, it's a prescription. It's a rule, it's a law, it's a regulation. And again, it's from that verb. And what does a verb do? It expresses what? Action. The action of God's love is expressed. And so when we think he's cutting us and he's hurting us, it's an action and an expression of his love. He's inscribing on us. And you, you know, that may hurt. It may hurt. But boy, oh boy, when it's done, it's truly who we are. And that's why the sword comes in and cuts sometimes. And you feel like it hurts and God's hurting you and hurting me. Reality is he's just cutting away. And if he doesn't cut away who we aren't, can he heal us and show us who we are? And that's why it's a two-edged sword. One side cuts, the other heals and reveals in Hebrews 4.12. So again, it's a determination to cut in, to determine, and to decree from 
kakok, and it means to hack, engrave, prescribe, to cut in, discern, to decree, and to determine. And is he constantly doing that to us? Yeah. He's constantly, freshly, constantly determining. His determination, he uses determine to determine who we are in his son. And he's constantly engraving. That's what he's doing with us right now, all of us together. All of us together. And it's such a beautiful thing. So, forever and ever unto generations. And God is doing this. How is he doing this? And I'll tell you how he's doing it, the way he told me. And then we're going to get into further, further down the road, the things that God has for us. But God only does what only he can do because he's what? He's sovereign. So God in his sovereignty acts and expresses himself through these statutes. (laughs) Okay? And what does it mean to be sovereign? Here's what it means to be sovereign. Sovereign in power. Think about that. God, how is God sovereign towards you and I? How do we experience his sovereignty and his power? Who is his power? It's Christ in us. And it means this. So when he is sovereign and supreme in me, in my experience, then he in me possesses supreme dominion. Nothing can dominate me but Christ. Nothing can dominate me but his thought through his word as he continues to inscribe who I am in my own individual intimate fellowship of character of who I am. And so it's dominion. What place does God not have dominion? Well, it says in Isaiah 57, verse 15, he inhabits eternity. Oh. (laughs) Where does he not, where is he not supreme and sovereign? He inhabits eternity. Where will we, in him, not be dominant? Boy, it's so necessary in James 4, 6. God resists the proud. He, He will resist pride in us but he'll give grace to those that he's humbled. Therefore, submit yourself to God. Then the devil will flee from you, all those thoughts, those lies, those projections, those lust patterns. Then the devil will flee from you. Then you can draw near to God. What keeps us from drawing near? A lie about character, a lie about God, a lie about the character of who Christ is, a lie about our character and who we are in him. So I need to go to another source. I need to go to another someone. Listen, fellowship means that two individuals are filled up with all of who Christ is in their own individuality. And that's called in John 19.30, a finished work. It's a finished work. Again, that word sovereign means supreme. Supreme. Listen to what it says, superior to all others. Now for us, God is superior to all others through Christ in us. Are we better than anybody else? No, but are we better off in his, him who's superior to all and everything? Is he superior to all and everything? No wonder it says in Romans 8, 31, since God for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, then who can be against God for you and win. We're more than conquerors in 8.37. And if you can't condemn me in Romans 8.1, and you can't in Christ, because that power keeps it all out. If you can't condemn me, 
you certainly can't separate me in 839 of Romans. So again, he is superior to all. Okay? He's chief. Ah. <laughs> He's chief. God is the sovereign good, listen to this one, of all who love and obey him. Why does he want us to obey? Does it seem like it's so hard to do that sometimes? Is the hardness in God or is it really in us? Is it an unsubmitted will to him who already gave us his son, paid for all of our sins, and is preparing a place for us in John 14, 3, in eternity, to dwell with him in an individuality and an exchange of fellowship forever? That's how much he loves us? Is it hard? Is then obedience hard? Is it hard to allow God to love us through that obedience and then to return it, that love that God is in us, he's created in us through Christ, and have fellowship? Well, to all who love and obey him. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you'll keep my commandment. And the commandment was allow through obedience his love to dominate you. That's John 14, 21 to 23. It's clearly what it says there. And again, in 1 John 3.18, love not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. See, my obedience will prove that I love God. Not what I say. It's my conduct revealing the character of Christ in me through submission of my will and function in the obedience that Christ has won for me in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 6. And there is a beauty in that. And so, again... We don't have to pretend anymore, do we? We don't have to pretend, do we? Will we pretend when we're in the flesh? We pretend that we love God and that he loves us? Come on, in my flesh, do I think God loves me? Do I even care? Do I love him? Of course not. The flesh is strong, settled feelings of unchangeable hatred towards God in Romans 8, 7. There isn't. But the fact of the matter is, Romans 12, verse 9 says, let love be without pretending. Let love be without hypocrisy. You know, the enemy wants us to function, not in the inscribed character of who we are, the engraved character of who we are. He wants us to function in a lie so that we can say that we love God and he loves us, but what are we acting like in, in the flesh? A hypocrite. Is it our true experience? Is that how God truly sees me? Will he ever remove his eye from his son, the righteousness that we are in him, in Job 36, verse 7, and in 1 Corinthians 1, and verse 30. He will not. He will not. Again, this is why experience is so very vital. And it must be the equal of our position. And when it's not, our experience is wrong. So, again, he is supremely efficacious. What is efficacious? Him who himself produces the results that he requires through grace by us receiving his word. That's efficacious. We function in the desired effects of who God has made us to be in the son of his love. It's so awesome. Efficacious. And so he's supremely efficacious. And when he is, in my experience, guess what I am? I'm superior to all others. Not better, but better off in my own individuality. See how that works? Okay, and then 
seeing that God is supremely efficacious and superior to all others, he is predominant. What's that? What's that? Dominant means what? You have control over everything. What is predominant? Well, that's God. He's always been. He's always been predominant. <laughs> and he can be dominant when we receive him. The predominance of his very unchanging nature and character, in essence, through Christ, when we function in it, what do we act like? We're dominant through his dominance over us in a very unique way. And so as, as, what, as, the, as the sovereign remedy, who is the only sovereign remedy to us? How did God meet that? How did God the Father meet that for himself in Genesis 22, verse 8? He had to have a lamb. How's he met ours? We have to have a lamb. And that lamb has met every single thing about us. He is the sovereign remedy. And no wonder it says in Psalm 107, verse 20, he sent his word. It's like what he's doing right now. He sent his word and he what? Healed them. But to heal them, what must he do first? In Hebrews 4, 12, cut out what's not of us in our experience because it's not equal to our position in Christ. And then when he does that, he heals. He doesn't cut to hurt, although it might. He cuts to heal in Hebrews 4.12. So again, he sent his word and he healed them and he delivered them from all our destructions. Can we deliver ourselves to anything? Can we make our own plans come true? Can we? No. He wants us to be occupied with the planner because I won't know the plan otherwise. You gotta know the planner first, so you trust him. And if you you can't trust the plan if you don't trust the planner. And if we think ahead, what are we doing? See, we miss the planner presently. And so finally, as we close, he's supreme. This again is sovereignty. He is supreme as sovereign authority. Who's our authority? Who's to only be our authority? It's Christ. And with that supreme authority that we are in Christ, that's our proper identity, and that's the image that he's constantly inscribing on us in 2 Peter 3.18 as we grow in progressive sanctification, okay? Because we were sanctified positionally in Christ, unchangeable. Now he's working it into our experience in time with eternal life being worked into us in time, and it's progressive growth first in grace, and then in a proper knowledge in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. So supreme is sovereign authority. Listen to what it says. He, this is God through Christ in us, he who possesses the highest authority. Who possesses the highest authority? It's Christ. Are we his possession? Has he apprehended us in Philippians 3? 14 and 15, 13, 14 and 15. Well, when he possesses us in our experience as his possession, what do we have? We have the highest authority. Look at what it says, without control. Meaning, I don't have to, think, I don't have to control a thing anymore because what could we really anyway? <laughs> we were designed for God's control through Christ. And let me tell you, he's in control of us. Right? With eternity. So what in time? can change the eternal mind of God through Christ. We have the mind of Christ. 
1 Corinthians 2.16. And through the word, he's engraving it on us. Amen? Amen. So, Father, thank you for the word this morning. Again, and you're still scratching and scribing. And so when I, when I say and others say, oh, God, we're just scratching this. Yes, but it's continual. It's continual, and it's beautiful. And thank you for it, Lord. And thank you for each and every individual here and each and every individual in you that hears this, the truth about who they are in him in 1 John 5, 20. And with that truth, the truth that Christ is in the vessel, you will keep us from going after idols. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.